Well, Merry Christmas. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn with me uh, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be in verses 18 through 23. And I'm going to begin today's message by reading Matthew's account of Jesus' birth. And after I read through the main text, we're going to focus the rest of our time on just one verse this morning, verse 23. So if you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand with me as I read God's word aloud. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word today. Amen? You may be seated. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, we're in the fourth and final week of a message series called Making Christmas Meaningful Again. You know, one challenge that we face each Advent season is allowing the Christmas story to become so familiar to us that it loses its meaning, it loses its effectiveness. It's easy to simply go through the motions, go through the Christmas routine, commercializing things to the point where the truth of Christmas no longer affects our lives in the way that it should. And so over the past several weeks, we've talked about how we can intentionally remove the things from our busy schedules that tend to get in the way of our worship. We've talked about how our spending tells a story. How we spend money this time of year, it tells a story. What kind of story does your spending tell? We've talked about how the greatest gift that we can give is not the one that costs the most financially, but it's really the gift of meaningful connection. It's the gift of relationship, following in the footsteps of our Savior. You know, the very first Christmas was extremely meaningful. We see this in the way that people from all walks of life responded to the birth of Jesus. But over 2,000 years later, something has changed in the way that we celebrate Christmas. I mean, simply look around the culture. Look around and see how commercialism and materialism and consumerism and selfishness has hijacked this time of year. And so we want to take a few steps back. We want to be intentional about how we spend our time, how we spend our resources. We want to make Christmas what it should be, uh, which is a joyous celebration of Jesus' birth. There's a life-changing phrase in today's passage that reminds us how to do just that. And this important phrase is found in verse 23. And although it's three words in our English language, it's a phrase, it's just one word in the original Greek. I guess the English language, we needed three words to be able to explain this in the fullest way possible. 
And I think even then, maybe we fall short. So I'm going to read verse 23 again. But as I do, see if you can catch the phrase that I'm talking about. See if you can recognize it. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So turn to someone next to you this morning, and uh, I want you to share what you think the phrase is. All right, don't be shy. Turn to someone next to you and share what do you think the important phrase is that we're going to talk about today. I don't hear very many people sharing today. (laughs) All right, if you said God with us, you're exactly right. God with us. This is the important phrase that reminds us what Christmas is all about. And it's a phrase that I hope we will all learn, that we'll remember and recite as we think about the depth and meaning that's contained in these three short English words, God with us. Uh, John Wesley, when he passed away, uh, his last words as he took his dying breath were, the best of all is God with us. You know, the last words that a person says before uh, they pass away are usually very important if they have that opportunity. And this was certainly the case with Wesley. And so let's take a closer look at these life-changing words from Matthew chapter 1. Today, I'd like to touch on three important truths. These are life-changing things. Number one, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is God with, and that Jesus is God with us. So if you're taking notes, number one, Jesus is God. What do we mean when we say that? What does the Bible mean when it makes that claim that Jesus is God? I think in short, it means that the creator God became a human being. And now you got to understand, friends, this would have been an outlandish claim in the first century Jewish culture. And I think it's an outlandish claim to many in our culture today. Yet everything that we read in the Old Testament, everything that we read in the New Testament affirms this truth, tells us that Jesus is God. In fact, here's another important statement that we all need to hear today. Christianity only makes sense if Jesus is God. Christianity only makes sense. The things that we do, how we live our lives, only make sense if Jesus is God. And so where... Does the Bible tell us that Jesus is God? There are many places, but I'm just going to focus on a few this morning. The first is John chapter 1. This was our text last week, so I'll highlight two verses for you this morning. John chapter 1, verse 1, this is how John began his gospel. In the beginning, the Word already existed. So before the beginning, before time as we know it, something was already there. Something already existed. There was no beginning and no end to this thing that he calls the word. He says the word was with God, and then here it is, the word was God. And so we should pause at verse one, and we should say, what is this word? Who is this word? Well, you jump down to verse 14, and John gives us the answer. So the word became human and made his home among us, and he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. We have seen his glory the glory of the Father's one and only Son. I would encourage you to go back this week and read John chapter 1 as we celebrate the birth of our Savior. Well, then we jump to the book of Acts, uh, chapter 20, verse 28. The Apostle Paul here, a little bit of context, he's writing to the elders of the Ephesian church. 
And he's giving them instruction on what it means to be an elder, what it means to be a shepherd in the church. And as we see, if you were to study the New Testament, and this is something that, that I think we have to hold in tension and kind of goes off the beaten path a little bit this morning, but that role of elder, of, of shepherd in the church, of pastor, that's not a role that is man-made. That's not something that um, people in the first century Jewish world and, and certainly in, in the Christian church when it was established, this isn't something uh, that men and women just voted on and we say, hey, I like this person, they should be an elder. No, this is a God-ordained role. So Paul's writing to these men and he's saying, verse 28, so guard yourselves and God's people. So we know one of the roles of an elder in the church is that of, of, of guard, of protection. Elders are to protect the church. And they do that in many ways. And then he says, feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased with his own blood. And so how does this verse point us back to Jesus as God? Well, we have to ask the question, who bought or purchased the church? The Bible tells us that God did, and he did so with his own blood. If you continue reading, the Apostle Paul is talking about Jesus. In Mark chapter 2, we read the story of the man who was lowered down through a ceiling so that Jesus could heal him. When we read this, we see that Jesus first forgave this man's sins, and then he healed him physically. So he healed him spiritually, and then he healed him physically. And the crowds who witnessed this, they pretty much all had the same reaction. And we see this reaction in Mark chapter 2, verse 7. It says, what what is he saying? That, That is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. So Jesus forgave this man's sins, and the crowd recognized that only God can do that. Jesus is God. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all teach the same truth, that Jesus is God. The other New Testament writers also affirm this truth over and over again, page after page. The early disciples who spent upwards of three years with Jesus, they all were convinced that Jesus is God. They had a front row seat to his teachings, to how he performed miracles, how he forgave sin, how he demonstrated love and compassion towards others. I mean, they saw these things and they realized that no other human being had ever lived like Jesus lived. There was something different about him. For the early disciples, the only way to account for what they were witnessing and experiencing was that Jesus is God. Only God could teach in the way that Jesus taught. Only God can forgive sins. Only God could perform the kind of miracles that they had witnessed. Only God could live the way that Jesus lived. The people who were alive during this time, they kept asking a question, and we see this several times in the New Testament, this question, who is this man? (laughs) Who is this man? The disciples concluded that he is Emmanuel, God with us. It's been said that if Jesus was not God, then he was an imposter, a liar, and the best con man the world has ever seen. But the early disciples, hundreds of eyewitnesses to the life of Christ, they became believers in what Jesus said and did. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the other New Testament writers, they all wrote down what they had witnessed, and they believed that God had come to be with them. They were actually willing to die for this truth. And many of them did die for their faith. They were were martyrs. 
And so if Christianity is right, if Jesus is God, then all the rest of the New Testament makes sense. The, the teachings, the miracles, the way these early believers put their trust in Jesus and followed him with their lives, they were completely sold out. But if Christianity is wrong, if Jesus is not God, then none of these make sense. And friends, we're wasting our time. So while the atonement for our sins by Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection are foundational to our faith, I would also say that it begins with the truth that Jesus is God. If he's not, then he was just another man who lived and died. And so this Christmas Eve, we can affirm and stand firm on the truth that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Amen? Number two, if you're taking notes, Jesus is God with. Jesus is God with. And this, this is the part of the Christmas story that I think we all love to celebrate. It's the warm, familiar part of Christmas that we talk about most often. This is the truth that our great God came to earth and walked among people. He shared meals with people. He healed people who were unhealable. He taught people the truths about the kingdom of God. He took on the religious establishment of his day who had totally missed the mark on who God really is and what it looks like to live for him. Jesus came and gave a whole new face and understanding to what God looks like. Now, if you were to go back to the Old Testament, you know, God didn't look like a helpless baby. In fact, God was somewhat terrifying in the Old Testament. I'll give you a few examples. When he appeared to Job, in Job chapter 38, verse 1, the Bible says that it was out of the whirlwind. Now, we read something like that, and we just kind of pass over it, because the, new, the, the NIV says it was out of a storm, but a whirlwind is, is so much more accurate, so much more descriptive of what this experience would have been like for Job. It's like a hurricane. It's, you know, hurricanes aren't warm or happy, are they? We don't live in you know, Hurricane Alley or anything like that, but take it from someone who grew up in Tornado Alley, right? The largest tornado that has ever touched down on earth, the highest wind speeds ever recorded on earth happened in El Reno, Oklahoma, over 300 miles an hour, 300 mile an hour winds. All right? Tornadoes, I think, are a little worse than hurricanes, but hurricanes are not far off. And so the Bible is describing God showing up out of the whirlwind. This, this, is, this is terrifying. When God appeared to Abraham in Genesis 15, he He's described as a smoking furnace. When God led the Israelites in Exodus chapter 13, the Bible says it was by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. How terrifying would that be? When Moses asked to see God's glory in Exodus 33, God placed him in the cleft of a rock and only allowed him to see his back after he had passed by. And when Moses came down from that experience, he had to put a veil over his face because even the backside of God was so bright and so radiant that the people were afraid to come near him. This is the God of the Bible. I have found that many people want to have a, an experience with God, but they don't really want to be with God in the way that the New Testament describes that we can be with God. People want an experience. They want a service. They want a song to make them feel a certain way, and then they want to go home and live their lives however they want to live. But to be with God, to truly be with God, 
is different than just having an emotional experience. Uh, Tim Keller explained it this way, that it's possible to be in the general presence of someone and not actually meet them. Don't get so close, but miss him. Don't be in the same room, but miss him altogether. He's saying it's possible to learn about God, right? It's possible to attend church and even celebrate a holiday like Christmas without actually having met with God. Let me share you a, with, with you a personal story. Uh, when my family first moved to Wisconsin, you know, everything was new. I'd never been to Wisconsin before the first time we came to interview, right? So we drove into Wisconsin. I had a sermon ready. I came to preach and meet this lovely group of people, and I had never been here before. And I'll be honest, I never thought Wisconsin is where we would end up, and I never thought Wisconsin and, and the people is, is where and who we would grow to love, but it is. So when my family first moved here, I was excited to learn something else about this area, that it's home to one of the coolest guitar shops around, uh, Dave's Guitar Shop. If you haven't been there, you need to go. Uh, the first time I was able to visit Dave's, I, I was blown away by the sheer number of uh, new and vintage guitars hanging on the wall. I mean, 20-foot walls. It's kind of like, like this. I don't, I don't know, 20 feet maybe, 25 feet. Just wall-to-wall, covered with guitars. And uh, it's like being in a candy shop, and it was just amazing. And so whenever I, I was in the shop, I saw some guitars that were, you know, upwards of $10,000, $20,000 guitars, just, just amazing. And as I made my way over to the acoustic room, it's my favorite part. You walk in and I, mean, I just, it's maybe kind of weird, but I love the smell of wood. <laughs> and and uh, I think Bill may know exactly what I'm talking about. He has a wood shop. You walk in somewhere like that and just the aroma is amazing. And so you walk in and seeing the acoustic guitars, you can touch them, you can play them, you can smell them. It's just awesome. And so um, <laughs> you laugh. It's it's not weird if you're a guitar player. You know exactly what I'm talking about. So I made my way over to the acoustic room. We'll keep going with the story. And uh, I noticed a very special instrument locked up in a display case. Uh, behind the glass was an early 1920s Lloyd Lohr Gibson mandolin. Now, I don't know if you've heard the name Lloyd Lohr before, and I don't think that I'm um, overdoing it with this comparison, but he's considered to be the Stradivari of the mandolin world, all right? So his mandolins, if you can find one, they sell for over $100,000. These mandolins are amazing. I didn't think they would let me hold it, play it. I was kind of afraid looking at it, (laughs) you know, Um, but I had to ask, right? And so I did. I asked one of the salesmen, and to my surprise, he opened up the case, he grabbed this mandolin, and he put it in my lap. He let me play this hundred-year-old work of art, and it sounded amazing as well. So I have a photo of this that I want to show you. It's just really cool. And so, that's a good-looking guy. (laughs) I had more hair then. (laughs) I'll blame it on you guys. No, but so this is is a 1923 Lloyd Lohr mandolin, and uh, Lloyd Lohr only made mandolins for Gibson for, I think, three to four years, maybe five at the most. Um, there's only a handful of them left in the world, and Dave has one of them. Very special instrument. The best mandolin players in the world, they, they play his mandolins. And so even though I was able to play this incredible instrument, can I confess something to you today? Um, I know nothing about its maker other than what the general population can find on Google, right? I can play 
something that he made, but I don't, I don't really know him. Even though Dave has this amazing instrument in his showroom, he's never met its maker either. He knows about him, but he doesn't really know him. And so what does that have to do with Christmas? Well, friends, being in the general vicinity of God is not the same thing as being with God. Another way that you could say this, uh, knowing about him is not the same as truly knowing him. I know a little bit about Lloyd Lohr. I've never met him. And you could go to Google and find the exact same information I can. You can go to your Bible and find the exact same information as I can. But have you met with God? Do you know him? Many of you are familiar with a man by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther's conversion story is well known all over the world. Maybe you've heard it before. Luther was a Catholic monk, a prolific Bible teacher, someone who prayed. He took communion each week. But he always felt far from God, uh, even angry with God, according to some of his own writings. Early on in his life, Luther based his relationship with God on his own works. He believed that if he just did good things and he strived to be a good person, then God would love him, God would accept him, and he could somehow earn salvation. One day, while reading from the book of Romans, he learned in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that the righteous shall live by faith. He started learning a lot more about this word faith. Luther realized that he wasn't truly saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. Instead, he was trying to earn salvation through works. If I can just do enough, if I can go to enough services, if I can do enough good works. After reading these words, um, he tells us that he put his faith in Jesus. He put his faith in Emmanuel, God with us. On the first Christmas, God came to us in the form of a baby. Humble, helpless. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born to an ordinary woman. He grew in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and all the people. Which means he grew physically, he grew intellectually, he experienced hunger and thirst just like we do. He became tired, he slept, he felt sorrow and grief, and when one of his best friends died, the Bible tells us that he wept. The Word became human. The Word became flesh and made his home among us. Jesus moved into the neighborhood. Jesus is God with. And so Jesus is God. Jesus is God with. And the last truth that I want to share with you this morning is that Jesus is God with us. Jesus is God with us. So who did Jesus come to be with? Well, we know when we read the New Testament that he came to be with shepherds and wise men who were searching for him, the humble and those who recognized their need for God. Jesus came for the sick, uh, not the healthy. But friends, let me share with you today that Jesus came for you as well. Jesus came for us. Jesus is God with us. And so there's three very short application questions for us today as it relates to this last point. And I want you to think about these, and, and you really need to be able to answer these for yourself today. Nobody else can do that. Number one, if Jesus is in fact God with us, do I personally trust him with my life in that way? Do you trust him? Have you given your life to him? Or are you holding on to something this season 
that's keeping you from being all in for Jesus? Are you relying on your morals like Luther did early on in his life before he put his faith in Jesus? Are you relying on what culture says about Jesus? Are you just going with the flow? Are you carrying around some hurt with you right now? Some, some habit maybe, some hang up that's weighing you down. Morals never saved anybody. Culture has always been opposed to Jesus. And let me share something important with you this morning. Your hurts, your habits, your, your hang-ups, they don't disqualify you from being able to have a relationship with Jesus. If anything, these are the very things that qualify you. You can come exactly as you are. I want to encourage you to lay down your moralistic achievements today. Stop following what's trendy and and cultural. Be honest with God about what's going on in your life. Stop trying to do enough to earn his love and his favor because guess what? You can never do enough. He already loves you. So much, the Bible says, that it was while you were at your very worst that Christ died for you. I want to encourage you today to open up your heart to Jesus. The only one who can truly heal the deep wounds that you've been walking around with. The only one who can give you the right perspective and outlook on life. The only one who was ever good enough to die in your place on a cross. If Jesus truly is God with us, then trust him with your life in that way. Family may go their own way. Friends may go their own way. Jesus has called us to follow his. The second short application point is that Christmas is about being with God. It's about being with God. And so what are you doing this season to be with God? You know, we've talked for the past three weeks about being intentional, about removing some of the things from our busy schedules. Have you done that? Or maybe Christmas Eve is the day to do it. He laid down his rightful place, was born as a human being, became a servant, lived a sinless life, and ultimately went to the cross where he was crucified, buried, and rose from the dead on the third day. I mean, just in that sentence, I I can't even explain to the extent what God did to be with you. He, He did so much to be with you, and I want to encourage you to focus your time and your attention on being with him this Christmas. Don't miss it. Number three, Christmas is about humbly worshiping God, giving him first place in your life. We've talked many times about how our human nature likes to compartmentalize our lives. We like to have a different room for everything. I mean, I think our homes are a good word picture for how we build our lives. In the kitchen, we cook. We eat. In the living room, we watch movies. We, we rest. In the bedroom, we sleep and other things. <laughs> Someone said, oh. If you're married, you know. And God is good. All the time. We compartmentalize our lives. And I think we do that in our faith as well. Do we not? I mean, we, we come to church on Sunday, we sing some songs, we, we go to work, where sometimes that difficult coworker gets the best of us. 
come home and we have our time with our spouse and, and our kids and we have our hobbies. And, and let me just tell you, I'm guilty of this too. God, but God doesn't want us to compartmentalize. The walls need to fall down this Christmas and Jesus needs to be Lord of our lives, of every aspect. John Stott once said that if you read the Bible, you'll see that nobody who ever met Jesus Christ ever had a moderate reaction to him. There are only three reactions to Jesus. They either hated him and wanted to kill him. We see that in our culture today. They were afraid of him and wanted to run away. I I think some people have a wrong view of God and they see God as someone with a heavy hand or a dictator or someone who's angry with them. Or they were absolutely smitten with him and they tried to give their whole lives to him. And that's what Jesus is calling us to today, friends. I don't think that anyone can can honestly say that Jesus was just an interesting person. He was either Lord and God, is Lord and God, or he's an imposter, a liar, and the best con man the world has ever seen. His followers were convinced that he is, in fact, Emmanuel, God with us. And that's why they wrote all through the New Testament about who Jesus is and what he had done. That's why countless Christians today will stand up with us this morning and say this life-changing phrase with conviction that Jesus is God with us. I want to invite you to stand and on the count of three, we're going to say this together and we're going to say this with conviction as we end our time in worship today. And I'm going to invite the worship team to join me on this stage. One, two, three. Jesus is God with us. Does that make a difference in your life? Amen.